good. Amen. If you've got your Bibles this evening, we'll be going to Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter six, verse two to eleven. If you're there, say amen. Second Samuel chapter six, verse two to eleven reads Again David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel. Thirty thousand and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baalai of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubs. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Hale, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord in all manner of instruments made of fair wood, even of harps and of psalteries and trimbles and cornets and cymbals. And when they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord were kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah and he called the name of the place Para Uzzah to this day. Para Uzzah means the breach of God or the the breach of Uzzah or the death of Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, which is Jerusalem, but carried it aside into the house of Obadon, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obadon, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obadon and all his household. With the help of the Lord tonight, I want to preach on good intentions. Why don't don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord God, for your word and for your truth. Lord Jesus and God, you have given us, Lord, a free will. Whether, God, we will believe the truth of your word or we'll believe the lies that we hear and see. God, I pray, Lord, this evening, God, as your word goes forth, give us ears to hear. Lord, speak to our hearts, almighty God. Lord, that your will and the purpose, Lord God, be done in us, Lord, that you will be well pleased with your people, Lord. I pray, have your way tonight, Lord Jesus. Give us understanding, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. By definition, good intention is a motivation or purpose that is morally and ethically commendable. It is a desire to do something. And we all possess good intentions. But intentions do not always align with those we seek to please. In our opening text, King David had the desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David, which is also known as Jerusalem. Uh, This took place not long after David had acquired the throne of all Israel. 
Before ascending to the throne of the house of Israel, David was first crowned king of Judah after the death of Saul and Jonathan. While Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was crowned king of Israel. Second Samuel chapter 3 and 1 tells us that now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. The crowning of the two kings divided the nation and brought about and brought the nation into a long bloody civil war. During this period of Israel's history, the book of Samuel records some tragic events and stories, such as Abner, Mephishabeth, Bana and Rahab, and Ishabeth himself. All the names we've just, I've just listed, many of us can at least recognize two names that stand out, Abner and Mephishabeth. But tonight I want to highlight the story of the two brothers, Bana and Rahab, the sons of Remon, a Berethite, who became David's supporters during this uh, civil war. And they were willing to do anything to gain his approval and expedite the race to the kingship over the entire kingdom. After the death of Saul and Jonathan, the house of Saul was led by his son, Ishbosheth. I'm going to keep keep pronouncing this name wrong. And Abner, who was one of his generals, was a major influencer in Ishabeth's campaign. And all the clout and support for the house of Saul in the tribe of Benjamin depended on Abner. So when Abner had a disagreement with Ishbosheth, he decided to switch camps and began putting pieces in place for the complete transfer of power to King David. And in the process, he convinced the tribe of Benjamin to turn their backs on their king, on their prince. And when their time had came, when the time would come. And so during his uh, diplomatic assignment, Abner was killed by Joab, David's right-hand man, uh, who was avenging his little brother's death that Abner had killed during one of the battles. Now, when the news of Abner reached all of Israel, the two brothers, Rahab and Banna, saw an opportunity to take out Ishbosheth and personally deliver the kingship to David. The intentions of Rahab and Banna, who killed Ishbosheth, were good in the sense that his death cleared the way for David to become the king of all Israel. Ishbosheth had no clout uh, really in his campaign because the elders didn't really have much confidence in him. And because Abner supported him, all of, how, although the, all of Israel supported him, his only claim to power was his birthright as a prince. And his elimination meant that the civil bloodshed would finally come to an end, which had been a great concern during the war to David. With only one contender for the kingship remaining, David would have the right of passage. Overall, the brothers believed that they could achieve three objectives by killing their prince, ending the civil war, eliminating the last obstacle for David to become king, and in the hopes of gaining his favor. During a time of civil unrest and uncertainty, this decision seemed rational with the best possible outcome. Because neither of the men were willing to give up. None of the men were willing to submit to the other. 
David was promised and anointed that he would be king of Israel once God had dealt with Saul. And Ishbosheth had a birthright. I'm a prince. The crown belongs to me. And so these men had good intentions, rational intentions. But unfortunately, their assumption that their action would please King David led to disastrous consequences that cost them their lives. Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 8 and 12. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. The Lord hath avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and all of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Banner his brother, the sons of Raham the Berethite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. You see, a lot of people had misconception that David hated the house of Saul. But rather, that was contrary to the truth. He didn't. It was just a misunderstanding that obviously Saul sought for his life and he had to flee as a fugitive. But he loved him. He loved Jonathan. He loved Saul. And so when this messenger came out to David and said, oh, this must be really good news. David really wants to hear this. Saul is finally dead. Jonathan is finally dead. You can now, you can now finally come out of exile and be king. So David asked him this question. How much more? When wicked men have slain a righteous man in his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. It's important to remember that good intentions, while admirable, only hold so much weight. When we act on those intentions and the outcome does not please the person we intend to help, the intent becomes less significant. That's why it's crucial to apply our intentions with care and consideration. We need to be mindful of how our actions will be received and make sure they align with our original intentions. In the opening text, it mentions that David was displeased with God because he had killed Uzzah, the son of Abinadab. The very people that had taken in the Ark of the Covenant after it was left by the Philistines. These people had given the Ark a place to rest. It seemed reasonable for David to question God's action. After all, why would God punish those who had shown devotion to him by housing the very furniture that represented his presence? Uzzah had only tried to prevent the ark from falling off the cart. David couldn't understand why God had allowed such a tragedy to occur. After the fall of the priesthood in Israel, David and his men became too comfortable with the presence of God. They forgot that the Lord, he is holy. That God had established written instructions on how to handle and execute everything relating to the tabernacle. 
When Eli and his sons fell, the tabernacle was disregarded. They forgot about the Ark of the Covenant when it was taken away by their enemies. For more than 40 years, no priest, no Levi, no King Saul, or even Samuel sought to have the tabernacle restored to its proper function. When God was rejected as king, he was utterly rejected. They had forgotten about him. They had forgotten about the Ark of the Covenant. You see, Uzzah... Sorry. After capturing the Ark, so the Philistines defeated Eli's sons because they went out to war and they thought that if we bring the Ark of the Covenant to the war, God will fight for us. But to their dismay, they were killed. And the Philistines took the Ark of God and when they took it to all their temples and cities to make a parade before their gods, God kept them destroying their gods and their temples. And so when the Philistines had enough of this torture, they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and attached uh, oxen to it. And then they directed the oxen to see where they would go. And so from a distance, they followed the oxen to see where the Ark would finally stop. And without a surprise, we, they saw that the Ark made its way back to Israel, to the house of Abinadab. That's where the oxen stopped. And Abinadab were able to house the, the Ark of the Covenant. And God blessed them uh, for their devotions. You see, Uzzah became too familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. As it had been in their living room every day since its arrival. Initially, there was reference and acknowledgement of its significance. Oh my God, I can't believe we have the Ark of the Covenant in our house. Perhaps in his euphoria and excitement, he even bragged about how God had chosen their family above all of Israel to come and dwell in their house. Maybe, maybe he bragged to his friends, we got the Ark of the Covenant in our house. You know, God has been good to us. And maybe his friends were like, well, prove it. Who's been there? Prove it. What do you mean you got the house of the... And maybe when his parents were not looking, he had his friends come through, maybe peek through the window and see this shining gold furniture in their house. But as the euphoria dissipated over time, as days turned into weeks and weeks into months and months into years, the Ark of the Covenant became just another piece of furniture in the house. Uzzah became a tragedy and God was not to be blamed. Uzzah became a tragedy because of King David and all the people that were with him. He was a tragedy of good intentions and a lack of knowledge. Uzzah was a tragedy of good intentions and a lack of knowledge. Hosea 4 and 6 says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou should be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. Israel had forgotten about the tabernacle of God. No one during Saul's reign, even King Saul himself, endeavored to restore tabernacle worship in Israel. And everybody they still interacted with God, but there was no tabernacle centralization of worship. 
And so though the initial words of Hosea are penned in the distant future, the principles in the prophecy against Israel are timeless. We all possess good intentions, but intentions and the application we choose to take may not always align with whom we seek to please. In Chronicles chapter 13, it gives us more context on our opening text. It reads, And David consulted with the captains and thousands and hundreds, and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the lands of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we inquired it not in the days of Saul. And David recognized that there was a big mistake that Saul made as king. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David, he calls everybody. He calls the priests, he calls the Levites, he calls the elders. Everybody had to come. David's desire and the people, people's desire was right. They were in the right place. Their motive was right. Their desire was right to restore the worship of God in Israel. Their desire to restore God as a true ruler was right. It was good, but unfortunately their application was not. And it cost Uzzah his life. Verse 12 of, thir- of Chronic- 1 Chronicles 13 says, And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark of home to himself to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obadim, the Gittite. It's unfortunate that it often takes a tragedy for people to reconceive, to consider the importance of inviting God in their endeavors. I'll say that again. It is unfortunate that it often takes a tragedy for people to consider the importance of inviting God in their endeavors. And this was the case with David and his people, who only asked the necessary question after a man's life had been lost. You see, they thought God would approve and God did. Their motives were right. Nobody asked the question, how do we go about it? Nobody bothered to pray and ask God how we should do this. When you read the stories of David, before a battle, he would normally ask the Lord, God, should I fight them? Will you deliver them into into my hands? And the Lord will say, go ahead, I am with you. But it's surprising that when it came to the most important Furniture in all of Israel that represented the presence of God. How David approached it so lightly was troubling. And so they only asked the necessary question after a man's life had gone. How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? It is crucial to prioritize seeking divine guidance and wisdom in all all of our actions to avoid such devastating consequences. It seemed nobody knew or had any knowledge of how to handle 
the Ark of the Covenant properly. You see, David and the people tried to copy what the Philistines did. They transported the Ark by a cart. Only if they had known the proper manner, or at the very least had asked and inquired of the Lord, Uzzah's life would have been spared. So what was the proper way of handling the ark? In the book of Exodus, uh, specifically in chapters 25 to 31, God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai and gives him detailed instructions on how to construct the tabernacle and its various furniture uh, for worship and service to him. And it's essential to note that the ark of the covenant was the first piece of furniture that God instructed Moses and the chosen workmen to make. For the tabernacle. And in Exodus 28, um, it reads from verse 40 And for Aaron's sons, thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles, and bonnets thou shalt make for them for the glory and for their beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron, thy brother, and his sons with them, and shall anoint them, and consecrate them, and sanctify them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness from the loins even unto the thighs they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come into the tabernacle of the congregation or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place, that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statue forever unto him and his seed after him. So God instructs Moses, this is the things that you're going to do, this is what you're going to make. And in verse 28, he addresses the role of the priest and how important, God emphasized how important holiness, sanctification, and consecration was when approaching the tabernacle. Special attention was given to the holy items that only the priest could approach. And even then, When they were given specific instructions to approach God with uttermost reverence. God, he is holy. And anything or anyone that was unclean in his presence would be consumed. In chapter 29 of Exodus, God goes on into detail about the process of sanctification and consecration that the priests had to undertake before they commenced their service and duties to God. In chapter 16 of Leviticus, God gives instructions and process about the one yearly sacrifice of atonement for all of Israel that the high priest had to do. And the high priest was the only one who got to see and approach the Ark of the Covenant once a year. And even he wasn't allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. Only he was allowed to sprinkle the blood or the sacrificed animal upon it with his fingers seven times. In chapter 3 of, of Numbers, God selects the tribe of Levi out of Israel to serve in all manner of service regarding the tabernacle and help the house of Aaron in their priestly duties. And any layman or stranger who tried to act in the role of the priest will be put to death. Numbers 3, 6 to 10. Continuing in Numbers chapter 3, God calls the Levites forward and assigns a task to every household in the tribe. And the house of Korhath was given the responsibility of moving, taking down, and setting up the furnitures of the sanctuary. 
Numbers 3, 29 to 32 says, The families of the sons of Kohath have, shall pitch on the, south, on the side of the tabernacle southward. And the chief of the house of the father of the families of the Kohaths shall be Elizathan, the son of Uzel. And their charge shall be the ark, the table, the candlestick, and the altars, and the vessels of the sanctuary, wherewith they minister and hang in, and all the service thereof. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall be chief over the chief of the Levites, and have the oversight of them that keep charge of the sanctuary. God had process and procedures, how everything was going to be taking place, how everything was going to be handled regarding the tabernacle. And in chapter 4 of Numbers, God instructs Moses on the order of taking down, moving, and setting up the tabernacle. The priest had to first go ahead into the tabernacle and cover all the items, all the pieces of furniture with specified colored clothes. Once that was done, then the sons of Kohath were allowed to come in and move the furnitures by the stakes. In Numbers, God emphasized four times how imperative it was for the house of Kohath to follow these instructions diligently, lest they die. Talking about how holy God was, how particular he was when he came to his presence. In Numbers chapter 4 and 15, he gives them the, the first warning. It says, And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward, meaning now they're about to move to another new location, they had to pack everything. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. This is the weight that they had to bear when carrying the vessels of God. In the same chapter, verse 17 to 19, it gives them the second warning. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, saying, Cut ye not off the tribe of the families of the Kohites from among the Levites, but thou do unto them that they may live and not die when they approach unto the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them, everyone to his service and to his burden. God tells Moses and Aaron, he tells them, it's very important that you guys do your part, that this family does not become a casualty in my presence. So Aaron and his sons, the priests, they had, they had a very important role to make sure that all the furnitures were covered properly, that the Kohites would not die in the presence of God, or if they breached the instructions. In verse 20, he gives them the third warning. But they shall not go in to see when the holy things are covered, lest they die. So they're not even allowed to be there when the priests are there to cover the holy things. They're not even allowed to see them. Only the priests were allowed in the holy place and the most holy place, or the holies of holies. The books of Samuel and Chronicles do not mention whether the ark was covered during its transportation from Abinadab's uh, place uh, to the city of David. 
And the people were unaware of the requirements and procedure for transporting the ark. And if they had known, they would have died. However, this demonstrates God's mercy. If that was the case, that the ark of the covenant was not covered. It only demonstrates God's mercy for the people's ignorance. When Uzzah touched the ark, it was the final straw. And God's anger was kindled against him, and he died. In Numbers chapter 7, he gives them the fourth warning. And he gives them how they should handle the vessels of the tabernacle. Verse 6 of Numbers chapter 7 says, And Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them unto the Levites. Two wagons, four oxen he gave unto the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave unto the sons of Mary, according to their service under the hand of Ithamah, the son of Aaron, the priest. Verse 9 says, But unto the sons of Kohath he gave none. Everybody else in in the house of Levi were given oxen and carts to transport their part of the tabernacle that they had to dismantle and move. So the gates and everything else, they had to put that on carts. They had the easy job. The carts did it for them. But for the house of Kohath, they were not allowed to move the furnitures of God on a cart. It says, because their service of the sanctuary belonging unto them was that they should bear upon their shoulders. That's why God had stakes uh, put through the furniture so that they would carry them on their shoulders. And when you begin to picture how they carried and how they proceeded through the desert with the Ark of the Covenant upon their shoulders, it was that of a procession of a king, which many people did in those times, especially uh, with uh, Egypt, where they would carry their king on their shoulders. He wouldn't ride on a cart, but when the procession took place, they would carry their king on their shoulders. And such was that the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant was not to be moved by any other mode of transportation, but by the, the sons of Korhath on their shoulders was it to be moved. God was not to be blamed for Uzzah's death. Uzzah became a tragedy because of King David and all the people who were with him. He was a tragedy of good intentions and a lack of knowledge. If David had first asked the question, Lord, this is my intentions. This is my desire. I long and I yearn for your presence, for your tabernacle to be restored to your kingdom. How would you have me to go about it? I'm sure God would have given him the answer. This is how you do it, David. But David got caught up in his euphoria. He got caught up in his excitement of bringing back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And his good, his good intentions resulted in the death of a man. We all possess good intentions, but good intentions do not always align with the will of those we seek to please. David and Uzzah had good intentions. Their actions were commendable. However, they did not execute their plan properly. David, all he was trying to do is restore true worship to Israel. Uzzah, all he was trying to do was just stopping the ark of God from reaching 
the floor. Sometimes we may have good intentions. Even though the intent is coming from a good motive, but how we execute those intentions may not always be pleasing to God. We must seek out God's will first and filter our intentions through prayer, the word, and godly counsel. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians chapter 3 emphasizes, emphasizes more than just praying for your food in the name of Jesus. The context of the chapter talks about the importance of putting off the old man and dying to self, modifying the works of the flesh and putting on the new man that is fashioned in the image of God. It also encourages us to walk in the spirit and allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Verse 17 reminds us that everything we say and do must be aligned with the will and purpose of God. We must represent Christ in both our private lives and public lives. Living and behaving in a manner that reflects him. Colossians, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. That's a sobering statement when we really think about the holiness of God. And how sometimes we treat God in us. And the actions and the things we do and say and the way that we behave in the light manner. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. When we are born again through water baptism in Jesus' name and are filled with the Holy Ghost, we become the temple of God. At this point, we no longer have free reign over our own lives. We no longer answer to ourselves, but rather to God. Everything we say and do must be filtered through him. Although we have free will, it does not give us the freedom to do as we please. Go wherever we want. We must always remember that God is now king. There are certain things that God will approve in our lives and certain things he will not approve. And it varies from each individual because God knows our strength and weaknesses. And I believe that the power of God within me is stronger than the negative influences in the world. Everybody loves to quote that scripture. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And we can take that at face value and, and think that we can go and do whatever we want because God is greater. So nothing out there is going to affect me. But it's a total misunderstanding of scripture. Certain activities that we participate in, people we associate with, all have consequences in how they affect us. Wisdom says in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion have light with darkness? 
if people and places we associate with have greater influence over us, then we are in dangerous waters. And our intentions and our reasoning may come from a good place, but wisdom tells us that we are unequally yoked. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 to 23. This is Peter and um, Jesus, as Jesus was talking to his disciples. And he was explaining to them that he must uh, suffer many things in order to bring forth the kingdom of God. From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not happen unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Peter in the Gospels did not understand what Jesus was saying. He failed to realize the importance of Jesus' death for the salvation of the world. Though his intentions were good in that he wanted to protect his master and his friend, it is crucial to align ourselves with the will of the one we seek to please. Due to his desire to protect Jesus, he unintentionally allowed himself to be influenced by a spirit that should not have been entertained. Jesus recognized this and rebuked him by saying, Get behind me, Satan. When we fail to understand and seek out the will of God, our good intentions can lead us down a dangerous path of entertaining spirits that we have no business entertaining. King Saul valued pleasing the people more than obeying God's commandments. And I sympathize with Saul, to be honest. I understand his reasoning. Um, and the men who are with him, I mean, they have fought war after war. They have killed and conquered their enemies. And sometimes the enemies had good, they had some good stuff. You know? It's like, well, we don't have this back in our home. Why put it to waste? Why destroy everything? When we can take some of these things and put it to good use. We've already won. We might as well take something for ourselves. And so their rationality, their reasoning, their intentions... They can be understood, but they fail to understand God's command and God's desire. And so when you study the history between the Amalekites and the Israelites, you soon begin to understand why God commanded them to be utterly destroyed. Everything was to be destroyed. Men, women, children, animals, everything was to be burned to the ground. And Saul failed to execute God's plan, God's will, God's purpose. What Saul and his men failed to understand, or maybe they did not know of this, but the Amalekites in Exodus waged an unprovoked war against Israel as they had just come out of the land of Egypt. And after their defeat, God swore, God made an oath to utterly wipe them out of the face of the earth. Exodus 13 Exodus 17, sorry, and 13 says, And Joshua discomfited Amalek, or Amalekites, and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write these, write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, 
For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with the Amalek from generation to generation. God made a promise. You attacked my people unprovoked. We were just crossing the borders and you came out of nowhere to attack us. I promise to wipe you guys out of the face of the earth. And if Saul had known that, he would have fulfilled the will of God. But his good intention thought they would please God. I've obeyed. I've destroyed everybody. What's wrong with taking a little for myself? What's wrong with taking a little for ourselves? Saul ended up partially obeying the commandments of God. And God was angry with him and stripped him of his anointing as king. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience in the sight of God. So, who later became the apostle Paul after his conversion, conversion was a zealous Pharisee. From his perspective, he had a good intention in trying to eliminate this new threat to Judaism called Christianity. However, the root of the matter was that Saul was battling what he knew and what he was seeing and experiencing. Perhaps he had done some research and found that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the law. And God began to deal with his heart. And so in his refusal to accept this revelation of Jesus, he decided to eliminate the movement, hoping that the ache and the tug of, in his spirit would stop if he had imprisoned and stopped this movement of Jesus Christ. And some of us, like Paul, might feel that God is calling us to something. God is calling us to greater commitment. God is giving us a specific calling. Or God is calling us to get out of our comfort zone. Whatever it is. But in our denial and refusal and stubbornness, we convince ourselves that where we are is the will of God. But God is saying, no, come closer. Go deeper. Deep is calling to deep. Oh, but God, you know, I'm serving you. I go to church. I pay my tithes. Isn't that good enough? I'm a good person. But God is not calling us just to be, to be good. He's calling us to more than that. God is calling us to more than just good intentions. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God never promised to disclose every detail of his will for our lives. He simply calls us to obey by faith. However, we are often reluctant to act unless he discloses everything. And if we agree, then we will do it. But let me clarify something. Although your will is involved in the process of doing God's will, God's purpose. Being part of God's will and working alongside him to fulfill his purpose for your life is one of the greatest privilege in this world. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's daunting. It's confronting. And we get scared and we shrivel up. We say, God, I don't think I can. 
I don't think I have the skills. I don't think I have it in me to do what you are calling me to do. But God is saying anyhow, trust in me. Two to three years ago, God was dealing me, dealing with me about his purpose for my life. And I remember, I think it was the foundation conference, and I was praying at the altar, I was praying right here. I can't remember what the sermon was. But God had been dealing with me for some time, and I was praying right here. And God rebuked me. It's like God took me by the shoulders and shook me and said, Jonathan, stop running. Stop hiding. Stop resisting me. And I'm like, Lord, what do you mean? How am I resisting you? I'm faithful. I come to church. I'm, I desire to serve you. To, I'm involved in all that I can to do your will. But God said, you have been rebellious. You see, what I didn't understand is that I had good intentions. I wanted to serve God. I wanted to walk with God. On one hand, I was praying, God, use me. God, I surrender to you. I'm all yours. Whatever you call me to do, God, I will do. Amen? Anybody made those prayers? And then on the other hand, I didn't want to completely give God control. I was struggling to completely surrender to the purpose and will of God for my lives. Yes, my intentions were good. But the application did not please God. Yes, I was up here worshiping. Leading worship. Teaching Bible studies. God moving mightily in all these things. And God will use us for the sake of the people that he's trying to reach. For the sake of his purpose for the church. But that does not give us an indication whether we're in the right place with God. And I thought I was alright with God. God is moving. We're doing Bible studies. People are getting baptized. People are getting filled with the Holy Ghost. We're having runaway service. God is using me to preach his word. But God is saying, you have not accepted my will. You have not surrendered to the purpose that I have for you. And I was weeping bitterly. And I repented of my stubbornness. The Bible says the stubbornness, the disobedience is the sin. Or witchcraft. And I said, God, forgive me. I thought I was doing your will. But I knew in my heart where God was tugging me. But I didn't want to commit. Came up with excuses why I shouldn't. Got myself busy with other things thinking I'm alright in the right place with God. But God was saying I got more than just good intentions for you. And as I went away and started to meditate and reflect on the Lord's rebuke, I turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 to 15 that says, for, our, for other foundation can no man lay than this that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work for what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burnt, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. As I, kept, as I began to contemplate on this scripture, 
I began to wonder and see what the outcome of my life once God calls us home would be. When my life is weighed and tested through the fire in heaven, would it come out as precious silver or gold? Or would it be just hay that gets burnt up to ashes? I desired to serve God. I truly hoped that my life would be used to make a difference. However, I approached everything on my terms with God. And when God tugged my heart, I resisted. I wanted to serve God, but I wanted to do it on my own terms. I had my own ideas of how God should use me, how his will should come to pass in my life. On one hand, I was praying God used me. On the other hand, I was struggling to completely surrender. I had good intentions, but good intentions do not always please the one whom we seek to please. I believe that God desires to do mighty things among us, in us, and through us. He is inviting every single one of us to be a part of what he wants to fulfill in this church and in this city. However, we must align ourselves with him. We must submit to God. That's why it's called submission and not agreement. When you gave your life to Christ and you surrendered for your sins and said, God, thank you for saving me. My life I gave into your hands. You signed a consent form saying, God, I don't want to be king in my life. I don't want to be the rule of my own will. But God, I submit to your authority. I submit to your will and what you want to do. Your word will be yes and amen. And I will follow your lead. But unless we align ourselves with God, we fall short. We miss out on what God is truly wanting to do. Places is wanting to take us. Fear cannot be an excuse. When we stand before God and we await through that fire, the Bible says no man will have an excuse. God, I was busy on the job. I had to pay my mortgage. I had to pay bills. God, I was caught up in other things. There is no excuse for us. Because we have surrendered our lives to God. And God is king. When David and his people sought out God's guidance on how to handle the covenant, God blessed their efforts to relocate the covenant to Jerusalem. God is not a God of condemnation. He didn't throw them off and say, you guys touched my ark, how dare you? I have nothing to do with you. But he was a God of mercy and a God of grace. And so when they went away for three months and they finally figured it out how to properly carry the presence of God, how to properly maneuver God's presence from one place to another, God bless their endeavors. Not only did he bless them in their endeavors to relocate the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, 
But moreover, God accepted David's desire to build him a permanent house, which later is referred to as Solomon's temple. But he also blessed David's lineage forever. When we align ourselves with God's will, it will not only impact us, but it will impact, it has the potential to impact those around us and future generations. All that David wanted to do was just build a tabernacle for God. He just wanted to build a temple for God. That's all he wanted to do. But God is not debtor to men. God said, I've always dwelt in tents. But because you've desired for me to, to dwell in a permanent home, I will bless you, David. Not only that, but your lineage will stay on the throne forever. And David was blessed that Jesus Christ would come through his lineage. They're forever king. If you would stand with me. If I could have the musician to the piano. It is family, it's famously quoted that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's a sobering quote. And I hope that won't be the statement given to us. Good intentions will never supersede the will of God and his word. But those intentions that we have, every single one of us have a desire to walk with God. Every one of us, we have the desire to make it to heaven, to be in a perfect relationship with Jesus. And we are flawed human beings, and God understands that. God understands that. But we cannot stay stubborn and resistant forever. But there must come a point where we have to make the choice. As we heard in the times of interpretation today, Choose you. Every day you have a choice to make. Do I choose truth? Or do I choose made up lies in my mind? Do I choose to follow the word of God? Or do I make my own interpretation of what God requires for my life? Why don't we lift our hands this evening? Lord Jesus, we love you, Lord. And God, we are so grateful and so thankful, God, for your truth that has set us free. We are so grateful, mighty God, for the purpose and plan that you have for our lives, Jesus. But God, you are calling us to more than just salvation. But God, you are calling us to be involved in everything that you want to do through your church in this time, Lord. And I pray in this place, mighty God, that we would submit ourselves to you. That daily, mighty God, we would choose you. That daily, Lord God, we would die to ourselves. That daily, Lord, we would seek your will for our lives. For you are King and Lord forevermore. That we would be a people that you are well pleased in. Servants, mighty God, that reflect your glory. These altars are open this evening.